After King Charles has put away his military uniform with the gold braid and the peaked cap, we saw it this week at the state funeral of Queen Elizabeth, the most enduring image of him is rather more earthy. It's the tweed coat and the green Wellington boots and the picture postcard English landscape. A romantic vision in the truest sense. Because Charles believes that nature and the environment are the best expressions of God and religion. To the extent that any monarch can have a political worldview, this is probably his. But of course now he must deal with the past, the violent history of Britain's imperial era. Professor Adrian Pabst of the University of Kent is a political philosopher, religious scholar and author of Post-Liberal Politics, The Coming Era of Renewal, and he's been studying Charles for many years. It's best captured by the title of his 2010 book, Harmony. What he wants to help bring about is a more harmonious society, a society characterised by greater balance, greater ecological balance, greater economic balance, social, and indeed also greater religious balance, not just between those who have no faith and those who do, but also between the different religions. So it's very much about, if you like, a more organic, anchored or rooted pluralism that nevertheless contains a very clear direction towards a universal transcendent truth. When I think of his public pronouncements, I uh, think of a man who is at once radical but also conservative. Oh, absolutely. That is the paradoxical politics of Charles III. It is not reactionary. He doesn't reject everything in the modern world, but he does say that the modern world and modernism in particular have led us down a wrong path, a path of pure materialism, destruction of the environment, which he has raised as a huge public problem for decades, economic destruction, you know, social fragmentation, and that rather than trying to undo history or reverse things, which never in the end is realistic or desirable, he's basically saying, let's create an alternative modernity, one that is much more concerned with balance, with the good things of tradition, inheritance, culture, language, customs, the common law tradition and so on, but also something that then transforms the world. So it's radical because it wants to bring about greater economic justice greater ecological sustainability. So he's marrying the traditional, all the good things we've received from history, with the radical. Where does his religious perspective come into this? I ask this because in the past, I think you have participated in seminars and important roundtables out at Windsor Castle. I don't know if the Prince of Wales or the new king was present, but I know this is a, a part of his thinking that you've concentrated on? Where does the religious sensibility come in? So the religious faith is absolutely central to everything Charles has, as I think, said and done, because in his first address as king, he said that what he believes in, what he stands for, is anchored in his Christian faith, which is rooted in the Church of England. But at the same time, we know that he's been very much influenced by other Christian traditions. So on his father's side, on the side of the family Prince Philip, of course, there is Eastern Orthodoxy. And there's a certain sort of more mystical, more embedded version of Christianity that isn't quite like the Protestant faith, but totally compatible because it is about both the book of scripture, the texts, but also the book of nature, how nature reveals God. And for Charles, that is absolutely central to his faith. And that's also why he has such strong 
connections with other spiritual traditions, other world religions, because you can see that in Islam, there's a certain sense of it, a unity of life, a unity of purpose, that, you know, in other Eastern faiths, not just Eastern Orthodoxy, there is something more organic, perhaps, than in some of the more modern expressions in the West. So he's very much a Christian, very much rooted in the Church of England with its beautiful liturgical traditions, the hymns all the ancient churches around the country, but also open to others. Precisely, he can see that the universal truth that he believes in is also reflected in other traditions. It strikes me that he's had to wear the same criticism, actually, as Pope Francis. They've both been criticised as being somehow religious relativists. Pope Francis, because he once asked Muslims to pray for him, Charles, because um, people argue that he doesn't seem to think that one religion speaks more truth than the next. I think that's simply a misreading because Charles has been very clear that he is a Christian, that he's an Anglican, that for him that is the expression that his faith takes and it is universal. He doesn't in no way believe that his faith isn't universal. All he's saying is, and this is very much in line with a long tradition of Christian theology stretching all the way back to St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine and, and many more besides, that because the world is God's creation and the glory reflect you know, all of God's glory, therefore, in other traditions, there are dim reflections of that universal truth. It is not all monopolized by one. That would be a kind of more modern abstract universalism, whereas he actually genuinely believes that other traditions can have a measure of that universal truth, even if they don't quite express it in the way that Christianity does. So he's in absolutely no sense whatsoever a relativist. He is a Christian pluralist, and I think that is vital to understand his position on these questions, but also on questions of the environment, the economy, integrating young people, the vulnerable and the poor into society. It underpins it all. You mentioned an important point there. In his first speech as king, now this was not a formal requirement, there was no oath in this, but he made a reference to uh, William, the new Prince of Wales, and his son having a mission to bring those at the margins to the centre. Now, how significant was this? Well, this is precisely where the progressives should listen and should take heed that he is absolutely not a reactionary who wants to leave things as they are. It's not just that he praises William for his work, and William has done very important work with the big issue and other initiatives. Charles himself set up the Prince's Trust precisely to promote the young. And let's not forget, King Charles III came of age in the 70s. And in the 70s, what did we have? An economic crisis or crises. You know, the first signs of serious ecological devastation. A society was becoming polarized and fragmented after the 60s, the Vietnam War and so on. So he has already lived through an age that isn't all that different from ours, albeit that today the context is different and the crises are more severe. But he was very prescient then when he realized if we don't help the young go from primary and secondary school into either university or indeed other forms of learning, and if we don't put them at the center of our economic model, we will be scarring a whole generation and we'll be destroying the society on which everything rests. Very much in line, for instance, with the Catholic social teaching ideas around the preferential options for the poor. And that's where he is, in fact, more radical than the progressives. 
Funny point, Adrian, that I've read just in the assessments of him in the last few days is that, yes, he he is in some ways a child of the 70s, a, a period when he matured and with his green wellies and his tweed jackets, he's a slightly establishment hippie figure. <laughs> I suppose that's one way of saying that he's very paradoxical. Yes, absolutely. The tweed representing the, the sense of continuity and stability but also protection against really foul weather. And of course, the green wellies, you know, being the thing that gets you through the mud without having wet feet all day. And no, no, it is marrying tradition with modernity, but it's not doing it on a kind of secular, utilitarian, materialist basis. That's the key thing. He is at once an idealist because he believes in something that's more than just utility maximization and that part of modernity, the kind of the rationalist calculus. And on the other hand, he also believes in materialism because he wants to protect the environment. He wants to actually preserve mother nature. So he's not anti-materialist so much as trying to bind materialism into something higher. So that in the end, you get a sort of realist idealism. He's a Christian Neoplatonist. He's worked with the Temenos Academy that promotes precisely that legacy and also recognizes traces of it in in Islam and other traditions, in Buddhism and so on. It is a very significant position. And I think both for culture, but also for politics in the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, this could be a very significant reign. You've described him as a neo-Platonist, essentially someone who asks the questions that Plato asks, what constitutes the good life? Exactly. And he's also like a philosopher king, trying to hold everyone, including himself, to higher standards of justice, because he recognizes that everything has an intrinsic good, all human activities, but nature as well have intrinsic goods. And it's those goods we have to uphold. That's what we should be judged by. And he would not in any way suggest that he is doing that all the time, that you know he has somehow reached a level of truth that others haven't. He's just trying to hold us all to much higher standards than, than we have been judged by. This is the Religion and Ethics Report with Andrew West. I'm speaking with Professor Adrian Pabst of the University of Kent. Adrian, there's a very real debate going on in Australia, but also in other parts of the Commonwealth, specifically those countries that were colonised by the British about the legacies of colonialism, the violence, the slavery. I'm wondering whether post-war modern Germany might provide a model here, because I know that there was a lot of debate in the first few years after World War II about Germany making amends for the awesome tragedy of the Holocaust, But in the end, Germany came to be seen as almost a model state in being able to face up to its dark history. Is there something that Charles can do on a similar level? So I think what he can do is provide some leadership and create a space in which people can express far more than has already been the case. But I think that may also be a role that might fall to his son, William, now the Prince of Wales. Because on his recent tour to the Caribbean, William spoke at quite some length about the darker sides of colonial history, about the deep stain of slavery, and also acknowledge that there may be countries that may choose in the end to abolish the monarchy and not to have the king as the head of state. And that would then apply not just to Charles, but of course to William himself. And so they are already saying, of course, the peoples and nations of the Commonwealth are free and should be free to choose how they are governed. But I think, yes, Charles will articulate this. And the question is, can Britain as a country follow and take up this new space that he's helping to create 
in order to engage with that history? I think that's going to be the big question, because in Germany, it was very much a collective effort. Mm. It wasn't just down to, you know, a few enlightened men, as it were. It was a national effort, and I think that's what it needs to become in the UK as well. There's an aesthetic to Charles as well that reminds me of Ruskin, John Ruskin, the romance philosopher and writer and art critic, and that is there's something innately in his soul about the countryside, isn't there? And this informs, I think, a lot of his philosophy. Absolutely. I mean, if Charles was a politician, and he isn't, we'd call him a Tory socialist. But fundamentally, what there is in Charles is what I would call a form of romanticism. Charles is really a romantic in the philosophical, in the religious and metaphysical sense. He believes that the world itself, beauty in the natural world, is an indication of God's creation and God's grace. And that therefore we need to strive to preserve that beauty, to try and enhance it through architecture and urban planning and so on. But also that fundamentally it is about beauty, goodness and truth. Those three transcendentals trying to somehow ally them. And that's what romanticism sought to do. And he is, in that sense, an unreconstructed romantic, not a sentimentalist, not someone who believes that everything's fine or there's a golden age to which we, we shall return. He wants to help articulate that complex relationship of the true, the beautiful and the good. And I think that is a really significant vision and one I think many people intuitively will share. It's inchoate, of course, but I think there is a sort of sense in which he can lead where others haven't and perhaps help redirect the economy, politics and culture towards something transcendent, something that has enduring universal meaning and value. And uh, according to a piece in that very interesting journal, The Critic, if anything, Charles sees his great enemy as modern corporate capitalism. Absolutely. And he's spoken at length about how modern corporate capitalism has been destructive, not only of the environment, though that has been, you know, one of the worst side effects, but also how it's left a whole generation out of jobs, without employment, without any job that has meaning, and left a whole generation of young people scarred and often scarred for life because they didn't have the institutions to support them to get through these economic crises that Charles lived through already in the in the 70s. Capitalism is something that Charles has repeatedly criticized alongside with modern bureaucracy. And at the heart of this is essentially his point that modernism is on the side of the impersonal, the inhuman. And the real pivot is between that and the human and the personal. And the monarchy is, of course, all about personal rule. So why are people so touched by the passing of Queen Elizabeth, because they felt that there was something always personal about this. This was always about the person who was the head of state, not some impersonal bureaucracy or some merely elected politician who then wouldn't really try and embody the nation. It's the personal that people want more of. And Charles can give expression to that centrality of the personal. Very good to speak with you, as always, Professor Adrian Pabst of the University of Kent. Adrian's latest book, by the way, is Post-Liberal Politics, The Coming Era of Renewal. We did a program on that at the start of this year. Adrian, thank you very much for coming back to the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you so much, Andrew. Real pleasure being with you. That ends today's Religion and Ethics Report. You can follow us at the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Hong Jang and Hamish Cavalieri. I'm Andrew West. Join us again for the Religion and Ethics Report. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.